This is Why Would No Date These Guys podcast. Dating, relationships, love, we talk about it all. Also, we should probably start mentioning we just review drinks at the start of each episode because I assume people who this podcast <laughs> gets recommended to will be like, I wanted to learn about why he does that. But also they're talking about root beer. Um, also, I think we've come to the point where we've run out of Trader Joe's drinks and that's why we haven't reviewed a Trader Joe's drink in a while. Like I recorded an episode recently with my boyfriend and we were drinking LaCroix and I felt really bad because I didn't explain at the like beginning that we just ran out of Trader Joe's drinks to try. How embarrassing. I don't think we were ever like tied to Trader Joe's drinks. I think it was more based no, off no, of no. a mark. We started yeah. the podcast with the idea of just trying different Oreos and then I was like, nobody wants to listen to that at the beginning. <laughs> um, yum, yum, yum. Ooh, you good we're getting some good asmr out of and then it was we can't do oreos also because we you can't buy individually like different flavored oreos you have to buy the whole freaking pack and then we were like what the hell do we do with all these extra oreos yeah after we tried literally two of them and we were thinking about just doing trader joe's products but i had a zoom meeting last week that i kept my camera off the entire time because i was eating vegan buffalo wings with trader joe's hummus and it was getting everywhere and i was like this is the most unattractive thing i've ever done and in the same way, I don't think our podcast listeners want to hear us glorp up some hummus and eat some vegan curry or now whatever. Now I just really want hot wings. Okay, so anyways, w- introduce our drink, introduce what we're talking about today. I'm glad How you are have you doing? Yeah, yeah. How are you doing? Uh, before we, we say that, we are drinking Pinon Cola. Uh, it's again from Zia, New Mexico Cola Company, and it is made with roasted pinon nut, cola nut, and lime. We were disappointed with their last one. Let's see how this one stacks up. I feel like I'm drinking carbonated mesquite tree. Oh, you're really good at Thank descriptions. Thank you. I love, yeah, it, I, I like it. it. It's not cola. It, it certainly tastes different. I don't think I'd go out of my way to buy this, but this is refreshing and it feels... I think it's because it's cold, Joel. That's potentially true. <laughs> no, I, I'm always a fan of like things that <clears throat> are made using the various things that grow naturally in the Southwest. And if yeah. they can use, you know weird ground nuts to make a cola substitute. I'm behind that. So for my boyfriend's birthday, I took him out to the speakeasy because he turned 21 and I was like, okay, we got to go do something fun. So I took him to the speakeasy. It's our, it's our favorite bar now. And um, they all know us by name. It's really funny. And so we took him there and I was like, okay, we have to get the, oh my God, it's my birthday shot. And um, it's called that. And so I got him one, I ordered him one, and he described it as um, he felt like a sequoia tree just like jizzed in his mouth. Mm. And that was the taste of it. And so I think that him and I go really well together because we can both describe things like really well. Charming. (laughs) Naomi, this has been an emotionally tumultuous time before we get to part two of Men Over Mars, Women Over Venus. Can you talk about some of the things you've been doing over the last few months to like de-stress, stay sane? Because I I want to make it clear to our listeners, we are fully of the belief that these are abnormal times. And if you are feeling stressed and unmotivated and finding it difficult to get out of bed, that's a completely natural reaction to an unnatural world. Well, I wouldn't say the last couple of months. I would say in the last week, I've been taking time to validate my own feelings. It's kind of hard to. I spent a lot of this week isolating myself just for the simple fact that I have to explain to people in my life why I'm feeling that way and why I'm feeling down. And the fact that I have to explain myself 
for the reasoning of the fact that they revoked my right to be a uh, my, my rights on my own body kind of it kind of makes me it undermines my sadness not undermines it invalidates it and so it's like I have to like explain over explain my feelings to some people that I know and that's been very hard on me and like emotionally tolling is that a word and so I've kind of just been isolating myself. I would say I would like to give a big shout out to my boyfriend who's been very supportive and like understanding and like validating. Sequoia Jizz Consumer. Sequoia Len. Jizz Consumer Len. He's been very nice and supportive and allegedly protesting. Allegedly. In Minecraft. In Minecraft. And um, I... It's been hard, but I'm trying to be nice to myself. But I also didn't think that it was coming so fast because I was like, oh, I'm going to get back from Peru and then I'm going to start microbiology right away, which is like a hard class. And so that along with what's been going on, I'm just like, wow, this is brain fuck like from the beginning. Yeah, biology is fun to study when half of it's illegal. They censor all the textbooks like you can't know about this. (laughs) They just sharpie everything out. Mm. How have you been taking care of yourself? Oh, I was interested. Any media you're consuming? Any? I feel, okay, so it's hard for me to, like, say that, like, I have, like, media that I'm consuming because, like, I feel like I've been on, like, social media a lot. And it's, Mm -hmm. like, empowering, but at the same time, it's really depressing. So it's, like, I have to limit myself to what media I'm consuming. Last week, my boyfriend came over and we were trying to do, like, a movie night to, like, you know, distract ourselves because that didn't mean that we were on social media. we chose Sophie's Choice. No, we chose Spiderhead, which is, like, To me, I'm, like, really sensitive to the media that I consume because, like, if it's too depressing, I'll just take on that feeling. And I took on that feeling. It's it's a weird movie. It has Miles Teller in it. That's the only reason why we watched it. Okay. And Chris Hemsworth. But anyways, it was just... It's a good movie. I just wouldn't recommend watching that movie when you're feeling down. Watch nice media. I always tend to watch my comfort show, which is New Girl, and Joel knows this, and he called me out in the last episode for it. Joel, what have you been doing to take care of yourself? I've been trying to get involved in some local groups, making a difference and supporting the community. I think a lot of people recognize that national politics are all messed up and it's going to be difficult to unscrew this in a short period of time. And one of the biggest places you can make a difference is your local area. So I've been volunteering with a political group, doing some tabling and direct action stuff. And then I've also been volunteering with TCA, Timby Community, sorry, TCAA, Timby Community Action Agency, which is a food bank locally. And I'm really happy to see, like, all of the food that's donated. Like, I think there's this perception we throw out a huge amount of food in our country, and that's, like, 100% true. But then you see, you know, like, Costco donating all of their cheesecakes and their big pies and their whole racks of ribs they can't sell and just being like, yeah, give them away to people. And that, that's kind of heartwarming. When I go to a food bank, I look for giant cheesecakes instead of large amounts of protein because cheesecake is good. Well, what they do, which I find like really cool, is they give everyone a vegetable, a protein, you know, an essentials bag of like beans and noodles and whatnot, and then a dessert. And that's I, cute. I think that's really cool because people can also, they get so much food, they can like, you know, say, hey, you know, I want a chocolatey thing or I want like an ice cream thing. And typically we can, you know, accommodate that request, which that is gives nice. me hope. Yeah. I will say this. A lot of people are going to food banks these days. So check out your local food banks. They may be asking for donations. Uh, typically money is a lot better than food donations because money can allow them to make bulk purchases and they can, you know, their money can go a lot further than yours can. Uh, they also typically will need help in the back room. So if you want to, you know, stuff food boxes for people, typically your local food bank will have opportunities available. I have not just been like 
doing shit. Uh, I think it's unrealistic to expect that as a solution to problems. I've also been. Joel playing. likes to work through his pain. He likes to distract himself heavily in order to ensure that he's not thinking about the issues in the world. So moving on from that, I've also been playing some fun video games. I got a couple of indie games, which are great. Uh, Shotgun King, which is basically chess, except your king has a shotgun. And you can take out pieces strategically, but every round, the other side gets more pieces and you get additional powers to work with. It's quite fun. Overboard, it's by the same people who've done a couple of visual novels I really appreciated. In this one, you're a wealthy widow who just murdered her husband on a boat and you have to figure out how to both prove your innocence while also getting the inheritance from your husband. And so that's kind of a, there's a sort of, I don't know if it's like a time travel plot where you can rewind time to make different decisions, but you have to come up with like the perfect day of what you're going to do after you've murdered your husband to convince people you're innocent, pin the crime on someone else and walk away with the insurance policy. That's really fun. Naomi's looking at me with such disgust. No, Joel just has like a weird fantasy where he's always just wanted to be a widow of a multimillionaire. Yes. And this is how he like deals with his, his. Yeah. And we've discussed this before, but I'm a big fan of games like Doom, where you can just murder demons, because remember, there's four acceptable groups you can murder, uh, demons, zombies, robots, and Nazis, and a lot of my games involve one of those groups. Um, And I've been playing Dusk, which is like an indie version of Doom, where you are attempting to confront unstoppable evil. Our Jewish ancestors would be so proud of you. Yeah. Yeah. If you are looking to get your yayas out and want to take down primordial evils, because, you know, there may be primordial evils in our current world. Uh, Dusk is a great recommendation. Love it. So now we've discussed that, Naomi. Let us get back to another primordial evil, <laughs> which is Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, the book by author John Gray, renowned charlatan John Gray, who got his correspondence degree, his correspondence PhD. Uh, I don't want to knock people who, like, take classes online. I want to knock people who take classes online and then pretend they're an expert with thousands of hours of experience. Does that seem fair? Yeah. Okay, so now that I have talked all about how stupid John Gray is, let's talk about something useful from his book, how Martians and Venusians speak different languages, Naomi. So in this metaphor where men are from Mars, women are from Venus, it would make sense that each of them has like a different language. Right? They're from completely different planets. They haven't interacted before. And he says, when the Martians and Venusians first got together, they encountered many of the problems with the relationships we have today. Because they recognized that they were different, they were able to solve these problems. And one of the secrets of their success was good communication. Ironically, they communicated well because they spoke different languages. When they had problems, they would just go to a translator for assistance. Everyone knew that people from, people from Mars and people from Venus spoke different languages, so when there was a conflict, they didn't start judging or fighting, but instead pulled out their phrase dictionaries to understand each other more fully. You see, the Martian and Venusian languages had the same words, but the way they were used gave different meanings. Their expressions were similar, but they had a different connotation or emotional emphasis. Misinterpreting each other was very easy, so when communication problems emerged, they assumed it was just one of those expected misunderstandings, and that with a little assistance, they would surely understand each other. They experienced a trust and acceptance that we rarely experience today. So he says that men and women will use phrases and attempt to get dramatically different outcomes. And when they use certain phrases, they'll mean one thing, but the opposite sex will interpret it in a different way. Which, this may be my personal experience, I think is somewhat decent advice. I would love to see some linguistic analysis 
which, you know, you'd think you could find after, you know, hundreds of years of people studying the ways people communicate, and he doesn't provide that. So I would say this is useful if true. I assume a lot of people use words to mean different things, and that if we studied it, we might find there's a more detailed breakdown than how he does it. But I think this is useful insofar as it's a way of understanding, like, how people are trying to tell you things in relationships some of the time. So here's an example he gives. To fully express their feelings, women assume poetic license to use various superlatives, metaphors, and generalizations. Men mistakenly take these expressions literally. Because they misunderstand the intended meaning, they commonly react in an unsupportive manner. In the following chart, here are some complaints that could be easily... Oh, that did not... Okay, this page turns, it says, in the following chart, followed by 10 complaints. Okay, in the following chart, 10 complaints easily misinterpreted are listed, as well as how a man might respond unsupportively. So women might say things like this. We never go out. Everyone ignores me. I am so tired. I can't do everything. I want to forget everything. This house is always a mess. No one listens to me anymore. Nothing is working. You don't love me anymore. I want more romance. You can see how a literal translation of a woman's words could easily mislead a man who is used to using speech as a means of conveying only facts and information. Uh, I should say this, the ten common complaints come from his ex-wife. <laughs> um, we can also see how a man's responses might lead to an argument. Unclear and unloving communication is the biggest problem in relationships. The number one complaint women have in relationships is I don't feel heard. Even this complaint is misunderstood and misinterpreted. A man's literal translation of I don't feel heard leads him to invalidate and argue with her feelings. That's pretty, pretty manly. He thinks he has heard her if he can repeat what she has said. A translation of a woman saying I don't feel heard so that a man correctly can interpret it is I feel as though you don't fully understand what I really mean to say or care about how I feel. Would you show me that you were interested in what you have to say and what I have to say? If a man really understood your complaint, then he would argue less and be able to respond more positively. When men and women are on the verge of arguing, they are generally misunderstanding each other. At such times, it is important to rethink or translate what they have heard. Naomi, what do you think about that? I'm still trying to like wrap my head around like you, what you said linguistically. And I think that like that's completely true, but I also think it's like very different between like age groups. Like it'd be even harder for a man and mm. a woman to like if there's a significant age difference between them, even just communicating with, like, my dad is hard sometimes. Sure. Because, like, I don't know why I said my dad. We share a father. Do we? <laughs> Do we? No, I think it... I I, com- I agree with what you're saying, and I feel like it'd be easier if everyone had the same dictionary, but not every... Like, internal dictionary. Yeah. But not everyone does. Yeah, I, I agree with what he's saying that... In my experience, women have used poetic metaphor. That's not to say men don't also, like, react, you know, poetically and are are quicker to respond to anger. I like what you're talking about with generational gaps. Yeah. And I think one thing that Steve Harvey, like, touched upon but really didn't go into detail on is how different racial groups communicate differently. That's also very true. And and so I, I think... John Gray isn't wrong. He's just, like, not extending the metaphor thoroughly yeah. and discussing all the different ways this could manifest. So, we never go out, translated into Martian, means I feel like going out and doing something together. We always have such a fun time, and I love being with you. What do you think? Would you take me out to dinner? It's been a few days since we went out. Without this translation, when a woman says we never go out, a man may hear, you're not doing your job. What a disappointment you've turned out to be. We never do anything together anymore because you're lazy, unromantic, and just boring. 
Everyone ignores me, translated to Martian means. Today I'm feeling ignored and unacknowledged. I feel as though no one sees me. Of course, I'm sure some people see me, but they also don't seem to care about me. I suppose I'm also disappointed in how you've been so busy lately. Without this translation, when a woman says that, a man may hear, I am so unhappy. I can't get the attention I need. Everything is completely hopeless. Even you don't notice me, and you're the person who's supposed to love me. You should be ashamed. You are so unloving. I would never ignore you this day. Other examples he gives, he's like, this house is a mess, translated into Martian means, today I feel like relaxing, but the house is messy. I'm frustrated and I need a rest. I hope you don't expect me to clean it all up. Would you agree with me that it is a mess and then offer to help clean it up? Without this translation, when a woman says, this house is a mess, a man may hear, this house is a mess because of you. I do everything possible to clean it up, and before I've finished, you have messed it up again. You are a lazy slob, and I don't want to live with you unless you change. Clean up or clear out. That's exactly what I mean. Oh, okay. I like how every time a Martian hears a sentence, he thinks it's about him. He's like, oh, fuck, I keep fucking up. How, how, oh, no, she's calling me out on my behavior. That's actually so true, and I think that, like, relates... That, like, what you just said really made an impact on what I'm thinking because in my past relationships, when I've been in relationships with insecure men, it's been everything that I say. I can't say anything jokingly. Right. Because everything that I say is taken to that level of everything is about me. I noticed. But I could just mean that I'm I'm involved with very narcissistic men. Uh, 100%. Exactly. No disagreement from me. Yeah. I noticed there's a problem on Twitter where like people will post relatively innocuous things like I like cats and someone will be like, what do you mean you fucking hate dogs? <laughs> but it, like, like that's an extreme example, but, but no, often people will, will post completely innocuous things and someone will like be 10 levels deep in all of like the different things they think they're insinuating and get all angry about something that they didn't even hint at. Yeah. And as a result, I feel people who are like permanently online will say things and then caveat it with like a bunch of things like I am so frustrated with X right now. I'm not saying all X. I'm saying some X. X is not always bad. I am supportive of the X group and all that they've done to help. our Right. It's an interesting phenomenon. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's definitely like a problem in our society where clearly the way we communicate online doesn't allow people to fully understand our intentions. Giselle, uh, one of our former guests on the podcast, sent me a TikTok recently. And That's it all was, Giselle is. It was, we have no personal relationship yeah, to her. No ones. personal relationship to her. She sent me a TikTok recently, and it was like quoting a twi- a, a Twitter, a quoting a tweet <laughs> <laughs> about this. Uh, it was like, we should really put um, uh, all snakes in front of men that say not all men. Um <laughs> Just to really spice up the the venomous snakes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of how he thinks women talk. He thinks women assume kind of poetic license at times. They use superlatives. They don't really mean, you know, I'm never validated. I'm never happy. They're trying to, like, use it as a way of amplifying the emotional intent behind what they're saying. Um, I had a former teacher in high school who said he felt swear words did the same thing. Like, he would sometimes use swear words, and he's not like, I'm not trying to be crass or vulgar. I'm trying to add, like, an emotional energy to what I'm saying, right? If I say I'm unhappy, that's, like, one thing. If I say I'm fucking unhappy or I'm fucking upset, right, that adds, like, a little extra, like, spice on top where you really understand, oh, this is different than, you know, a normal... A little bit of spice. Yeah. So the distinction he gives between men and women is that 
One of the biggest challenges for men is to correctly interpret and support a woman when she's talking about her feelings. The biggest challenge for women is to correctly interpret and support a man when he isn't talking. Silence is most easily misinterpreted by women. Quite often, a man will suddenly stop communicating and become silent. This was unheard of on Venus. At first, a woman thinks the man is deaf. She thinks that maybe he doesn't hear what's being said, and that's why he's not responding. Now, Mr. Gray says men and women think and process information very differently. Women think out loud, sharing the process of inner discovery with an interested listener. Even today, a woman often discovers what she wants to say through the process of just talking. This process is perfectly normal and especially necessary sometimes. But men process information very differently. Before they talk or respond, they first silently mull over or think about what they've heard or experienced. Internally and silently, they figure out the most correct or useful response. They first formulate it inside and then express it. This process could take from minutes to hours. And to make things even more confusing, if he does not have enough information to process an answer, a man may not respond at all. I kind of disagree with this. That's not to say like men and women don't talk differently, but in my experience, at least in professional environments, men are the first to respond when someone like asks a question, when someone raises a concern. Um, men want people that think they're intelligent and they'll be like quick to the gun of proposing solutions, even if they're not actually good. And most women I've interacted with in the professional environment are quite reserved and don't say something unless they're like 100% confident with it. Did you have the same experiences? I would agree with that. I would think that it's definitely the way that we raise men versus women though, or just yeah. people in general. Like we raise, everyone gets raised differently, but I think that there's like a certain level of confidence that comes along with having a penis. And if you're constantly invalidated in the workplace, you don't want to speak up unless you know you're 100% right. It's kind of like when you're in class as a kid and you like don't want to raise your hand because that one time that you answered wrong mm. and everybody laughed at you. And then talk you talk about it, buddy. <laughs> never answer a question ever again in class. Yeah. Maybe it's different for personal relationships. I, I definitely have had points where I want to sit and think about what I say in order to make what I want to say completely clear. I know at times I'll, I'll say things and my meaning will not be apparent and I'll have to like repeat myself in a couple of different yeah. ways before like what I'm trying to say is actually properly articulated. Yeah, I don't know. I, that, again, this isn't to say there isn't a gender breakdown in communication. It's just this doesn't seem like a proper synopsis of it. Yeah. So the thing he brings up, and I think we discussed this earlier, was women not understanding that men sometimes need to retreat to their cave. Right, this idea that men need solitude to process problems, think about things before yeah. they come out, and that women shouldn't misinterpret that as like them leaving the relationship. I think he maybe goes too far because, like, he says women should always respect men not being emotionally responsive, and it's like, oh, but that could also mean an end of relationship. <laughs> that doesn't just mean that like men aren't communicating with you and need time to process stuff. And he gives this like really crazy metaphor where he's like describing this, this, this idea of like men being in caves. And he says, once when I was talking this, about this at one of my seminars, a Native American shared to me in her tribe, mothers would instruct young women getting married. Remember that when a man was upset or stressed, he would withdraw into his cave. She was not to take it personally. Most importantly, they warned the young women never to follow him into the cave. If she did, then she would get burned by the dragon who protected the cave. And I'm like, that seems like a made-up anecdote. Yeah. I don't think there's a long history of dragons in Native American culture. I checked, and there's something resembling dragons in some Native American mythology, but this seems really, really contrived. So 
Um, women get burned by the dragon not only when they unknowingly invade a man's introspective time, but also when they misinterpret his expressions. When asked what's the matter, a Martian will say something brief like, it's nothing, or I am okay. These brief signals are generally the only way a Venusian knows to give him space to work out his feelings alone. Instead of saying, I am upset and need some time to be alone, men just become quiet. Now, a man might say something like, it's okay. A man might say, it's fine, it's nothing, it's alright, it's no big deal, it's no problem. And he says, and I would agree with this based on my personal experience, when a man makes one of the above abbreviated comments, he generally wants silent acceptance or space. At times like this, to avoid misinterpretation and unnecessary panic, the Venusians consult their Martian Venusian phrase dictionary. Without this assistance, women misinterpret these abbreviated expressions. Women need to know that when a man says, I am okay, it is an abbreviated version of what he really means, which is, I am okay because I can deal with this alone. I do not need any help. Please support me by not worrying about me. Trust that I can deal with it all by myself. Without this, when he's upset and says I am okay, it sounds to her as if he is denying his feelings or problems. He then attempts to help him by asking questions or talking about what she thinks the problem is. She does not know he is speaking in an abbreviated language. So, I find that personally good advice. I do think that a lot of the time men want to, like, process stuff by themselves and don't need like emotional support to the same degree. I do think it's dangerous because there's definitely men who need emotional support and they're socialized to not talk about their feelings. And I don't really have good advice for how to like determine what the difference is. But I do think again, in a very generalized sense, this is helpful advice. And he gives translations for women of a couple of things men might say. I'm fine means I'm fine because I'm successfully dealing with my upset or problems. I don't need any help. If I do, I will ask. It's nothing means nothing is bothering me I cannot handle alone. Please don't ask me any more questions about it. It's all right means this is a problem, but you're not to blame. I can resolve this within myself if you don't interrupt my process by asking more questions or offering suggestions. Just act like it didn't happen, and I can process it within myself more effectively. It's no big deal means it is no big deal because I can make things work again. Please don't dwell on this. This makes me upset. And finally, it's no problem means I have no problem doing this or solving this problem. It is my pleasure to offer this gift to you. Milady. Milady. Yeah. So he suggests that when women, I don't even know what I was trying to say there. When men retreat into their caves, women react by supporting. He says, don't disapprove of his need for withdrawing. Don't try to help him solve his problem by offering solutions. Don't sit near the door of the cave and wait for him to come out. Don't worry about him or feel sorry for him. Do something that makes you happy. He says, look, you need to understand men need alone time. So go do something to like improve your emotional state. Don't think that, you know, your significant other is inherently miserable just because they don't want to spend time with you. I'm like, okay, yeah. No need to make this gendered. I don't understand why this has to be gendered, but um, yeah, we can we can we can buy that as a decent explanation. Oh, I'm forgetting one example he gives about uh, turkeys. Yeah, I mentioned that in the last episode, but he was talking about how men feel most supported when people don't provide advice. And he gives the example of a man carving the turkey for Thanksgiving and how he feels mistrusted when a woman provides him tips on how to more efficiently cut a turkey. And it's like, okay, just turn it into ground meat. I don't care. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Have you ever cut a turkey? No. I have not either. I think it's because we've never hosted Thanksgiving. This is true. Yeah. Well, we, we, we or any holiday that requires a turkey. <laughs> okay. So I mentioned this in the first episode, but I feel he's providing analogies about men and women, Martians and Venetians, that 
actually kind of disprove his assertion that they're dissimilar, that actually his analogies are proving that men and women have very similar coping mechanisms and ways of understanding the world. So the example he gives for like people's emotional states, he says, men are like rubber bands and women are like waves. So for men, he says, when they pull away, they can only stretch so far before they come springing back. A rubber band is the perfect metaphor to understanding the male intimacy cycle. This cycle involves getting close, pulling away, and then getting close again. When a man loves a woman, periodically he needs to pull away before he can get closer. So basically what he's saying is men like their alone time. Yeah. Men like the ability to solve their problems. If a man is pulling away from you, it means he wants time to himself to think about things and process. But after he's able to think through things and process, he's going to bounce back and be more loving and doting than ever. I don't believe that. I, I get what he's saying about men needing alone time, but also it's like, yeah, this could be the end of a relationship. I don't <laughs> know why that's always going to you know, mean that he's going to come back to you. The example he gives for women is saying women are like waves, right? And I find that a very strange metaphor because he says, when she feels loved, her self-esteem rises and falls in a wave motion. When she is feeling really good, she'll reach a peak, but then suddenly her mood may change and her wave crashes down. This crash is temporary. After she reaches bottom, suddenly her mood will shift and she will again feel good about herself. Automatically, her wave begins to rise back up. When a woman's wave rises, she feels as if she has an abundance of love to give. When it falls, she feels her inner emptiness and needs to be filled up with love. This time of bottoming out is a time for emotional house cleaning. Okay, I need to jump in. So recently I heard this woman, and I don't know how accurate this is because I am not a hormonal doctor, but she was like, men's hormones reset every day and women's hormones reset every 30 days. And so it could just be a hormonal aspect of, you know, just bodily autonomy differences that could explain the the wave that he's describing. I've heard something similar. I can't talk too knowledgeably we about can't. this. None of us can. I, I think people's hormonal cycles are something that's still like very misunderstood. Yeah. And we definitely need more yeah. research into it. What I find strange about this is he's kind of describing the same process. A rubber band will go up, stretch away, and then come back. Yeah. A wave will go up and then come back. Yeah. But he's also trying to make this out as some, like, profound difference between the genders. And I get he's sort of saying that, like, they do this for different reasons in terms of, like, emotional retreat. Yeah. But he's essentially describing the same process of needing time to oneself and then going back to their partner more loving and full of energy than ever. Yeah. I don't understand what he feels the need to make this a gendered thing. Only the only reason he would need to do this is if he's trying to prove that men and women are fundamentally different and that you that's need to exactly read a self-help book doing. that describes how men and women yeah. are fundamentally different in order to be better in your relationship. Yeah. When again, the better advice would be sometimes both genders, both sexes want the ability to have time to themselves, think no. about and process their feelings and then return to their partner. I just don't believe you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for providing good advice. You're so welcome. You, ever since you got your PhD in your My honorary doctorate. Yeah. yeah. What I also find interesting is he doesn't really have any research on this. Uh, on page 130, he says, One study revealed that a woman's self-esteem generally rises and falls in a cycle between 21 and 35 days. No study's been done on how often a man pulls back like a rubber band. My experience is that it's about the same. A woman's self-esteem cycle is not necessarily in sync with her menstrual cycle, but it does average out once every 28 days. 
So he's citing research, but there's no study. You scroll to the back and you're like, there's no research here. He you puts a little asterisk, but there butt. is no asterisk page. There, there's an asterisk, but it's written in white. Yeah. So you can't actually see it on the paper. Yeah, so he's not a very inquisitive individual. It feels like he's just gathering research that supports his... If this research exists, he's just gathering stuff that supports his hypothesis and not, like, including evidence that might disprove his assertions. Well, the great yogi Maharshi Mahesh said that you don't actually need to quote any research when you're doing books. And so he just follows what the yogi says. He he meditated really long and came up with these assertions. The universe opened up. The the primal frequencies aligned. That's exactly what happened. Opened his third eye. Yeah. And, and, you know, as we're talking about, like, all of this this weird phrasing and how he's articulating stuff, he also describes, like, things that I think he's trying to play off as insightful uh, looks into the human condition that are just, like, obvious things taught in psychology. So one example he gives is of a couple. Uh, there was Chris and Pam. Um, Chris was so unhappy. He's like, I'm completely confused. When we got married, we were poor. We both worked hard and we barely had enough money for rent. Sometimes my wife, Pam, would complain about how hard her life was. I could understand it. But now we're rich. We both have successful careers. How can she still be unhappy and complain? Other women would give anything to be in her situation. All we do is fight. We were happier when we were poor. Now we want a divorce. So first, John Gray's like, women are like waves, am I right? Sometimes they rise and then they fall which I don't know how that's really relevant. But the second thing, and he's trying to present this this profound insight, he says, money doesn't fulfill emotional needs. And he's like, look, just because you have money doesn't mean all your problems are solved. As a woman's financial needs are fulfilled, they become more aware of their emotional needs. And he presents this in his own like special box on the page. He actually highlights it. It's like, look what a profound insight. That's literally the Maslow hierarchy of needs. <laughs> like if you took like Psych 101, they'd probably talk about that and be like, hey, once people's physiological needs like food, water, warmth, their safety needs like security and safety are fulfilled. That's when they can focus on psychological stuff like intimate relationships and the feeling of accomplishment. And once those are fulfilled, that's when they can focus on self-actualization. So either he was the first person to propose this long before Maslow did, which is fundamentally untrue, (laughs) or he took a correspondence degree in psychology and doesn't actually know what's considered like well-known psychological research and what's like actually in-depth and new stuff that I'm going to go with your answer. Yeah. John Gray, you are so smart. Now I want to get back to this idea that he's conflating the same thing for both sexes, but presenting it in different ways. And he talks about on page 144, the 12 kinds of love. He says, most of our complex emotional needs can be summarized as the need for love. Men and women each have six unique love needs that are all equally important. Men primarily need trust, acceptance, appreciation, admiration, approval, and encouragement. Women primarily need caring, understanding, respect, devotion, validation, and reassurance. The enormous task of figuring out what a partner needs is simplified greatly through understanding these 12 different kinds of love. I don't know where any of this is coming from. He just makes this assertion. I feel like all of those overlap, though. Yes! All of them overlap, and you can use them as synonyms for other words that he has on the list. Yeah. So it's like, why? So women need to receive caring. Men need to receive approval, encouragement, admiration. Women need to receive respect. Men need to receive appreciation. Yeah. Um, women need to have reassurance. Men need to receive encouragement 
right? Like, they're the same things, just yeah. worded differently. And he's trying to present this as this profound insight into the human condition when really it's like, no, men and women are actually kind of similar, bud. Now, he caveats this and says, certainly every man and woman ultimately needs all 12 kinds of love. Certainly. He's just saying that the primary needs they have are different. When, in fact, the primary needs they have are the same. Certainly. What a smart, smart dude. Um, I have this note in here, Steve Harvey returns on page 150 of this book. Okay. And I think it kind of does with this example he gives. And I've written this like three times throughout this passage. Steve Harvey, Steve Harvey, Steve yeah. Harvey. Because he provides this kind of sexist story to illustrate how he, he thinks men achieve emotional fulfillment. I have an idea for you. Mm-hmm. Instead of our, um, you know, typical... Oh, uh, like our typical podcast poster that's like plastered everywhere when we submit an episode through Buzzsprout. Why don't we just have our picture just being a Venn diagram of like the differences uh, between and, and the similarities between Steve Harvey and John, what's his face? John Gray. John Gray. Yeah. They're the same person. They're the same person. It's right. just one circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the example he gives, which is supposed to describe, like, how men find meaning in love, is the knight in shining armor. Can you imagine how this might be a toxic metaphor? Yep. Deep inside every man, there's a hero or a knight in shining armor. More than anything, he wants to succeed in serving and protecting the woman he loves. The entire time I'm reading this, I'm thinking of, like, Steve Harvey describing six-year-old him being tasked with defending his mother on the bus from, like, predators. Yeah. And how traumatizing it'd be if his mother was hit by a bus. And he was like, oh, my God, I failed my sacred duty. Little Steve Harvey with his thick mustache and giant lollipop. When he feels trusted, he's able to tap into this noble part of himself. I'm imagining the kid from Shrek. Do the roar! Do the roar! But, like, little Steve Harvey with a lollipop. When he feels trusted, he's able to tap into the noble part of himself. He becomes more caring. When he doesn't feel trusted, he loses some of his aliveness and energy, and after a while, he can stop caring. Okay, this is a long metaphor, but I'll try to breeze through it. Imagine a knight in shining armor travels through the countryside. Suddenly, he hears a woman crying out in distress. In an instant, he comes alive. Urging his horse to the gallop, he races to her castle where she is trapped by a dragon. The noble knight pulls out his sword, slays the dragon. As a result, he is lovingly received by the princess. As the gates open, he is welcomed and celebrated by the family of the princess and townspeople. He is invited to live in the town and is acknowledged as a hero. He and the princess fall in love. A month later, the noble knight goes on another trip. On the way back, he hears his beloved princess crying out for help. Another dragon has attacked the castle. When the knight arrives, he pulls out his sword to slay the dragon. Before he swings, the princess cries out from the tower, Don't use your sword! Use this noose! It'll work better! She throws him the noose and motions motions to him instructions about how to use it. He hesitantly follows her instructions. He wraps it around the dragon's neck and then pulls hard. The dragon dies, and everyone rejoices. At the celebration dinner, the knight feels he didn't really do anything. Somehow, because he used her noose and didn't use his sword, he doesn't feel worthy of the town's trust and admiration. After the event, he is slightly depressed and forgets to shine his armor. Month later, he goes on another trip, blah, 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 blah. Another dragon comes. He rushes home. Oh, my God, there's a dragon. In a moment of hesitation, he runs forward, but then thinks maybe he should use the noose. Unfortunately, the dragon takes advantage to breathe fire and burns his right arm. In confusion, he looks up and sees his princess waving from the castle window. Use this poison, she yells. The noose doesn't work. She throws him the poison, which he pours into the dragon's mouth, and the dragon dies. Everyone rejoices and celebrates, but the knight feels ashamed. 
month later, he goes on another trip, and another dragon invades the can, town. Can is... you get to the point of this? Well, here's the problem. This time on his journey, Naomi, he hears another woman in distress. As he rushes to her call, his depression is lifted, and he feels confident and alive. But as he draws his sword to slay the dragon, he again hesitates. Should I use my sword, the noose, or the poison? What would the princess say? For a moment, he is confused, but then he remembers how he had felt before he knew the princess, back in the days when he only carried a sword. With a burst of renewed confidence, he throws off the noose and the poison and charges the dragon with his trusted sword. He slays the dragon, and the townspeople rejoice. The knight in shining armor never returned to his princess. He stays in a new village and lives happily ever after. He said, fuck he that He eventually bitch. married, but only after making sure his new partner knew nothing about nooses and poisons. I hate men. What's the moral of this story, Naomi? The moral of the story is that men feel emasculated by women who are just trying to help them. Yeah. Also women who are providing solutions that solve the problem he's currently facing. Yeah. Like, I don't know if according to this tale, like, the noose was the only thing that could kill this dragon. He literally could have been eaten by yeah. the, the dragon. And he's like being mad that she was like, oh, I'm going to give you solutions so that you don't get eaten and you don't die. I would argue he's also like a really bad knight. Because yeah. like if you're rushing in to like stop a dragon, you probably shouldn't have to like pause and think about your strategic options. Yeah. Like it's some, look, we're not the biggest fans of police officers on this podcast, but like, in the same way a police officer might train in a shooting range to be ready for, like, a threat, you would imagine a knight would, like, train and, you know, work out all the kinks in his strategy and all that. Yeah, this is just a messed up metaphor, because, like, he's just saying he wants a dumb wife who doesn't know how to solve problems, right? He's saying women who know how to do the job of a knight are stupid and shouldn't be married. Yeah. Or uh, maybe that's going too far. Maybe just fundamentally incompatible and will never be married. Yeah. Right? So he's saying women tone down your ability to like know things and you will be more attractive to a man, which is exactly what Steve Harvey says. When he's <laughs> like, no matter how competent and professional a woman is, she can't flaunt her wealth or her like experience. They need to have men change tires for them, even if they know it. Yep. They need to have men like kill a spire, even if they're okay with it. You know how many men I know that can change a tire? I, I don't know, but I'm assuming it's not that many. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, so the secret to empowering a man is to be a doormat. And he reiterates this point. Just as men need to learn the art of listening to fulfill a woman's primary love needs, women need to learn the art of empowerment. When a woman enlists the support of a man, she empowers him to be all that he can be. A man feels empowered when he is trusted, accepted, appreciated, admired, approved of, and encouraged. Women don't want any of that stuff. Like in our story of the knight in shining armor, many women try to help their man by improving him, but unknowingly weaken or hurt him. Any attempt to change him takes away the loving trust, acceptance, appreciation, admiration, approval, and encouragement that are his primary needs. Hey, um, I know he wanted to go out to dinner, and I just wanted to say it's a fancy restaurant, and you wearing a t-shirt covered in vomit probably isn't going to play well. Shut the fuck up! <laughs> We're going to go eat fancy Italian, and I will wipe the shirt on my mouth like a bib if I want. How yeah. dare you? Why not? The secret of empowering a man is never to try to change him or improve him. Oh it's not just changing him. It's also you can't allow him to improve. Certainly you may want him to change. Just don't act on that desire, Naomi. Only if he directly and specifically asks for advice is he open to assistance in changing. Hey, I don't like it when you scream at me all the time. And you demand that I make you dinner after I've come home. God damn it, Joel, just do the dishes. And you've been playing video games all day. 
Also, I think our cat's dead because you haven't been watering or feeding him the last couple of weeks, and I really appreciate the next time we get a cat, you fed him. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you would take that. See, this is, again, like, the, the expectation of John Gray is relationships are, like, necessary, and no matter how, like, back-breaking and unhappy they make you, you have to put up with it. When in reality, he and Steve Harvey are kind of just disproved by women who are like, oh, no, I'm much happier when I'm single. I know a lot of women that are much happier, and they, like, glow different when they aren't in relationships. Maybe yeah. they're just all secretly lesbians. And, and, and anyway, he doesn't stop there. He literally has a section where he's like, men don't want to be improved. How to give up trying to change a man. What you need to remember when, like, men are, are, are annoying you is just, like, give up. So that's really fun and not at all toxic. Um, I'm like how he thinks women need to change their behavior by not being doormats and men need to change their behavior by respecting women. <laughs> I guess respecting women, even if they have to yell at them a little bit. first. Yeah. 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 Cool. Cool. Okay. I'll say this. The last parts you get into get really weird. Like we're getting so much further from any actual research. He just comes up with the assertion that men and women think about their relationships in terms of points it's a point game. Yeah. yeah. So he thinks that. I've heard that before. Yeah. He thinks that men think that when they do big acts of service, like buying a woman a new car or taking her out to fancy dinner, that's a lot of points. Yeah. And John Gray's like, no, 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 no. All women think is every single thing you do for them is one point. Yeah. Right. And you shouldn't expect you get extra points just for doing like bigger favors. Yeah. I don't know. I feel that's like fundamentally untrue. I don't think of my relationship in terms of like chits. That's a very like capitalist 1980s yeah, perspective. I would definitely think it depends on the relationship because like I've have been in relationships where like I do point, like I keep points, but there's also relationships like the one that I'm in right now where I'm just like, he does night thing for me. I do night thing for him. No point. Yeah. Just, just vibes. I think it's concerning if you think of your relationship in terms of points because it, might signal that you think you've messed up and want to make sure you can like outweigh messing up in some way. And you think that like, just because you like borrowed your significant other's car and got into an accident, you can make up for that by baking her cookies. And that's a bad way of thinking about what kind of cookies are they? That's a really good point. <laughs> uh, double chocolate. Okay. Cool. Maybe that said in the middle of this section, he has a section on how to score points with a woman. And I'm like, Oh, okay, this isn't all bad advice. I don't think you should be thinking of it in terms of like making up for your failures, but not all of this is horrible. So here are some things John Gray has. Again, I think these are probably pretty good pieces of advice regardless of the sex of your partner, but let's pretend it's just your wife. Okay, okay. Upon returning home, find her first before doing anything else and give her a hug. That's cute. Ask her specific questions about her day that indicate an awareness of what she was planning to do, such as how did your appointment with the doctor go? Resist the temptation to solve her problems. Empathize instead. Give her 20 minutes of unsolicited quality attention. Don't read the newspaper or be distracted by anything else during this time. This is so 90s. People still reading the newspaper. (laughs) Bring your cut flowers as a surprise, as well as on special occasions. Plan a date several days in advance rather than waiting for Friday night. Validate her feelings when she is upset. Schedule extra time when traveling so you don't have to rush. Offer to build a fire in wintertime. If she usually washes, washes the, the dishes, the room, you don't have a fireplace. Just be like, <laughs> you house. want a fire? 
If she usually washes the dishes, occasionally offer to wash the dishes, especially if she's tired that day. Guys, just do the dishes. <laughs> Here's a good piece of advice. Give her four hugs a day. Four hugs. It's good advice, but I would say that's not nearly enough. I think I think eight is like the least that you need. I think that's what scientists said. Call her from work to ask how she is or to share something exciting or to tell her I love you. Notice when the trash is full and offer to empty it. Wash her car. Wash before having sex or put on cologne. <laughs> offer to give her a back or neck or foot massage. Make a point of cuddling or being affectionate without it being sexual. Display affection in public. Be understanding when she's late or decides to change her outfits. Buy her an outfit. Uh, <laughs> buy her little presents like a small box of chocolates or perfume. Let her see you carry a picture of her in your wallet and update it from time to time. Write a note or make a sign on special occasions such as anniversaries or birthdays. Notice how she's feeling and comment on it. You look happy today. And then ask a question like, how was your day? Take her dancing or take dancing letters together. Offer to sharpen her knives in the kitchen. Open the door for her. Offer to carry her groceries. Offer to carry heavy boxes. Ask her how she's been feeling. Give her a kiss and say goodbye when you leave. Laugh at her jokes and humor. Verbally say thank you. I feel, I feel it started like, out good and then yeah. it got like first into this sort of Steve Harvey women don't know how to do anything. Yeah. And also like basic etiquette courses. I feel like all of these are just how to be a decent human being and like listen and be good mm-hmm. a person to others. But boy, you will score so many points now. Yeah. I mean, if you're ever dating a woman, just keep in mind, these are how you score points. Okay. There's one last section I want to talk about before we wrap up, and this is one of the last things he goes into detail on before, like, he ends the book, and that's the practice of writing love letters. And this is a deeply fucked up way of thinking about relationships. And if your partner is writing you letters like this, or if they propose you need to be writing letters like this, I think you're on your last legs. So this is one of the things he talks about. He doesn't mention his last marriage. He mentions his current marriage at the time. Oh, so he got married again. And you imagine that a lot of these might apply to the woman he divorced. I remember when I first learned to redirect my energies into the little things. When Bonnie and I were first married, I was a workaholic. In addition to writing books and teaching seminars, I had a counseling practice of almost 50 hours a week, if I do say so myself. In the first year of our marriage, she let me know again and again how much she needed more time with me. Repeatedly, she would share her feelings of abandonment and hurt. So right here we have an example of a woman enforcing her boundaries, not being a doormat, and him ignoring it. So I feel that advice kind of goes out the window. Sometimes she would share her feelings in a letter. We call this a love letter. It always ends with love and includes feelings of anger, sadness, fear, and sorrow. She wrote this love letter about me spending too much time at work. Dear John, I'm writing you this letter to share with you my feelings. I don't mean to tell you what to do. I just want you to understand me. I am angry that you spend so much time at work. I am angry that you come home with nothing left for me. I want to spend more time with you. It hurts to feel like you care more about your clients than me. I feel sad that you are tired. I miss you. I'm afraid you don't want to spend time with me. I'm afraid of being another burden in your life. I'm afraid of sounding like a nag. I'm afraid my feelings are not important to you. I'm sorry if this is hard to hear. I know you are doing your best. I appreciate how hard you work. Love you, Bonnie. After reading about her feeling neglected, I realized I truly was giving more to my clients than I was to her. I would give my undivided attention to my clients and then come home exhausted and ignore my wife. Instead of seeing eight clients today, I started seeing seven. I pretended that my wife was my eighth client. 
Every night, I came home an hour earlier. I pretended in my mind that my wife was my most important client. I started giving her that devoted and undivided attention I would give a client. I started doing little things for her. The success of this plan was immediate. Not only was she happier, but I was too. I don't if want- you have to think about your wife as a fucking client, get rid of your wife and stop being in relationships until you can figure out how to actually be in a relationship without thinking of them as a client. If the husband thinks of you as a customer. <laughs> and why did it his marriage have to get to the point mm-hmm. where she was like, I'm so angry at you. He probably like skipped out on the part of the letter where he she was like, I want a divorce. <laughs> Um, yeah, I feel if it's gotten to the point where your wife has to write you not just passive aggressive, but like aggressive, aggressive aggressive letters, uh, you may be on the last legs. I don't want to invalidate her feelings. These feel like genuine feelings. I don't think magically writing a letter is going to solve things. And I think it's naive to suggest this as a solution, but then he immediately starts suggesting it as a solution. Uh, A couple of pages later, he starts talking about, you know, the point system again and provides like different options for like scoring and winning points. And then he starts talking about communicating difficult feelings. And he's like, here's how to write a perfect love letter. Address the letter to your partner. Pretend that he is listening to you with love and understanding. (laughs) Start with anger, then sadness, then fear, then regret. What if you're not feeling all of those? What if you're just feeling anger? Well, you have to include all of them now. Oh, yeah, sure. it's okay. a practice. Okay. Write a few sentences about each feeling. Keep each section approximately the same. Pause and notice the next feeling coming up. Write about that. Do not stop your letter until you get to the end. Sign your name to the end. Take a few minutes. Think about what you want or need and write it in a PS. And then he gives letter guides. He gives you like like a Mad Lib style way of crafting <laughs> these letters in here. So you know how to write your your mournful letter to your significant other. And, and again... I think it's important to recognize your emotions. I think it's important to understand why you feel in a certain way. I just think at the point where you can't have an honest conversation with your partner, you need to think about ending the relationship at the point where the only way they respect you is by treating you as a customer. That's a deep, deep problem. And we're supposed to, respect the opinions of someone who nearly got divorced to talk about the best ways to conduct to relationships. Fix the relationship, yeah. Yeah, that's not to say that like having experience in something can't make you more qualified. It's to say that like maybe someone who's been divorced once isn't the best person to talk about making long-lasting relationships. Not especially all experience if he thinks, is good experience. Especially if he's under the impression that all relationships can come back from nearly the end. Right. Or even the end. So that's about it, what I had for this text. There's other sections that I've glossed through. I've definitely, like, condensed a lot of content he has. I feel a lot of it, like, is just boring and intuitive. It doesn't have these special little insights you think are important. I want to kind of wrap this up by talking about the main messages from the text. Because I have a couple questions that logically arise from this that he never answers. And maybe in one of his, like, later books... Excuse me. In 2017, (laughs) that cola went straight to me. In 2017, maybe he touches on this. But my first question was, does this apply to gay couples? And no, it's always heterosexual back and forth. I think that... There were no gay couples in the 90s. That's fair. Yeah. I think lesbian couples would do well under this model because women seem to love and affirm each other and they speak the same language. Not always. 
You're no, according to, according to him, that's how it should work. Fair, fair uh, enough. But then gay men wouldn't work out because men only care about domination and winning. And unless you have like two classy Wall Street money never sleeps gentlemen getting together, it wouldn't work out. Uh, but also the fact doesn't even acknowledge gay couples probably indicates he doesn't think that they're valid. I don't know. How might trans people fit in? I think that would be interesting because if there were like actual gender differences or like sexual differences, it'd be fascinating looking at like the brain chemistry of someone who like was trans and see if they have brain chemistry that more closely matches men or women. Um, But of course he doesn't use any actual scientific research to back up any of his claims. So maybe that indicates that nothing that he's saying actually has a root in fact. I don't know. Um, uh, he does note that about 10% of women have higher than normal testosterone may relate more than Mars. So like clearly he understands that like not all this is going to apply to all people, but the fact he so like blatantly generalizes from the majority of the population probably indicates he doesn't really think about trans people. Um, the third thing, and we talked about this was, does this vary based on racial or class background or as you're saying age, mm-hmm. I would imagine if he's writing this in the 1990s, there are probably people who were married in the 1950s who have very different views on relationships yeah. than people who are just getting together in the 1990s. And the fact he just broad brushes and treats every generation as the same, again, kind of indicates that he doesn't have a firm grasp on the different breakdowns of where this advice might be He applicable. doesn't have a firm grasp. Yeah. Period. <laughs> so my main issues with this text are that I, I think there's useful advice buried within it, but it rides the line between prescriptive and descriptive. He basically doesn't really explain whether or not this is how people should act versus how they actually act, right? He seemingly thinks that all this is good, but also treats it as matter of fact, like this is how men and women operate, deal with it. <laughs> I don't like that. Um, I think it creates a lot of artificial stereotypes about men and women that don't exist. And that, I think it's really problematic that he doesn't think that people can expect their partners to ever change. I think if you're in a relationship with someone where they're doing something that harms you, whether mentally or physically, you, you shouldn't should be in, that, in relationship. that relationship. Yep. But also there are times a partner might do something that annoys you, like how they put the toilet paper, or like peeing in the toilet seat <laughs> where you can ask them to change their behavior because yeah. it's a minor inconvenience yeah. and not a huge deal breaker. And the fact he's like, no, you can never ask a person to change. It'll harm a man's self-esteem is just absolutely mind blowing. Wait, I, I never understood this. You can't ask people to change, but you're supposed to get women to change in relationships in order for the relationship to work. Well, the only way a woman will change is they learn to be more assertive and less of a doormat. Nami's doing all sorts of crazy things with her eyes right now. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone roll her eyes as far back <laughs> in her head as she has right now. Uh, I want to say before we wrap up, we've given a lot of examples how his way of describing men and women is bullshit. And it turns out there's actually been research done on this. So 20 years after his book was published, there was a research paper in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology called Men and Women Are From Earth, Examining the Latent Structure of Gender. This was in October of 2012. And they basically came up with a list of gendered behavior, ranging from like how you interact with people to what you like in the bedroom. And they ran this survey past hundreds of people and compared the answers of these different groups. And they discovered that there are differences between men and women, but there's so much overlap 
between the different between the groups. Like there's so many women who act more like men and men who act more like women that it doesn't make sense to say there are innate gender or sexual differences between them. Some differences exist, but not to a degree that allow you to successfully predict if someone is male or female. So some advice that he has might apply here, but men and women are broadly the same mentally. So again, that goes back to the whole like Barnum's principle, where a man reading this text might be like, oh yeah, I'm a man and I identify this. And a woman reading this might be like, oh, I'm a woman and I identify with this. But if you were to write the same thing and reverse the gender, it'd be like women sometimes need to go to their caves. Men sometimes need to talk about their feelings. Most people would probably accept it too. So that's kind of funny. The most recent research indicates that, yeah, um, the, the study involved, uh, I'm sorry, it involved over 13,000 people. Uh, oh my God, actual statistics, <laughs> actual data? On most psychological characteristics or tendencies, including the big five personality traits, as well as sexually questions like rating level of desire for casual sex, there's not a taxonomic difference between men and women on the vast majority of personality traits and preferences. Despite there being differences in averages by gender, the distributions overlap so much that a taxonomy distinction was not meaningful. This was contrary to the assertions of pop psychology titles like men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It is untrue that men and women even think about their relationships in qualitatively different ways. There are notable taxonomic differences on physical attributes and measurements of physical strength, but that was the only thing. So they're just, this. we just debunked the, this entire book. Well, I, th- I think there's a utility in walking through both the actual research and then like giving examples of how, yeah, giving examples about how you can imagine counter explanations for the behavior he's describing. And I think especially in this world where people are for some reason, highly distrustful of scientists and science, it's important to give intuitive explanations of why an author with a correspondence degree that may or may not have come from an accredited (laughs) university actually has anything insightful to say. I don't know. This book sucks. Yeah, every book that we've read on this podcast. No, not every book. Most oh, books. <laughs> men are, obviously, Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man was more sexist than this and probably ripped off elements from this, but yeah. it was more entertaining. Steve Harvey yeah. just said, like, horrible things. He was like, all I really want to do is sit on my Lazy Boy and eat pizza and watch ESPN. But also had that weird aside. He was like, and the only place they go on vacation was Vegas. Yeah. Because what happens in Vegas, you're like, but there's only men in this world, yeah. Steve. I don't understand. <laughs> men, Steve Harvey is just secretly gay. Yeah. yeah. No, I don't want to make that assertion. It's okay if you're secretly gay, Steve. That's totally fine. Um, Just don't give advice, period. Yeah. Look, look, <laughs> we heard that men don't like it when women give them advice. No one likes it when Steve <laughs> Harvey gives you advice. Okay. Well, we hope you have another great week. Uh, we hope you enjoyed your this episode. We um, hope you never have to read a book again. Yeah. Don't read this book for sure. Um. Hey, here's a good book I didn't mention earlier, uh, Paradise Built in Hell. If you're concerned about the collapse of social institutions and stuff, uh, Paradise Built in Hell is like, hey, here's a bunch of examples of natural national disasters where, like, entire cities were devastated. And, oh, my God, people worked together and built communities. And, like, it was not rioting and anarchy like every post-apocalyptic film would show. Wow. So if you're concerned about human nature, read that book. It's really inspiring. I really appreciate that you ended on a good note because sometimes when you, like, give book recommendations, it turns out like this book. So Yeah. Well, that's about it. Thanks, all. Uh, don't, we're not saying enjoy your week. Find solace in something this week. Treat yourself.